From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. Good day, Andrew. How are you going? I am really well. That's nice great. to talk to you again and again. And again. And again. <laughs> uh, today we're going to look at that um, story that's hit the news uh, with quite a flurry. Everybody's excited about this $100 million uh, research project that they've announced to to send basically a mission to Alpha Centauri but what's interesting is how they're going to do it and uh, even the uh, the spacecraft themselves uh, certainly set the imagination uh, on fire. We'll also uh, look at uh, why the Hitomi X-ray mission failed. Uh, The spacecraft seems to have destroyed itself and that in itself is a fascinating story because they, um, they seem to have pieced together the reason why. And uh, they're going to do some crowdfunding into the WOW signal, which was detected in 1977. And uh, even all these years later, we're still wondering what that was all about. But first, uh, Alpha Centauri, Fred. Uh, It's our nearest neighbour system. Uh, It's one of the brightest parts of the sky. And we're even now wondering what what it's all about. Um, But uh, a billionaire is going to bankroll perhaps a mission to, to get there and have a look. Uh, indeed, that's right. And um, more than that, Andrew, it's all about uh, developing completely new technology, which would be required to, to get a, a spacecraft to Alpha Centauri in anything like uh, a sensible timescale. So Alpha Centauri, the, the brighter of the two pointers that we see down in the south of the sky there, uh, known to have multiple stars and probably multiple planets as well. Uh, so the, but by far the nearest star system uh, to our own uh, solar system. Of course, the sun is the nearest star to us, but the nearest star to the sun is Alpha Centauri. Its distance is uh, 4.2 light years. Remember, one light year is nine and a half trillion kilometers. So you can do the maths in your head because mm. you're a genius. I know that. Uh, so uh, a long way. In, in kilometers, it's, it's a ridiculously long way. And it takes like 4.2 years to get from Alpha Centauri uh, to ourselves. So what would happen if you sent a spacecraft there? And, um, I, I, you know, I, it's a question I've had many, many times, especially when you talk about very fast spacecraft, like the New Horizons uh, spacecraft that flew by Pluto last year. That was launched something like nine years before the Pluto encounter um, uh, and uh, basically took that length of time to get to the outer regions of our own solar system, Pluto, uh, an object beyond the orbit of Neptune, uh, which is, of course, the most distant planet from the sun. So um, 
That spacecraft achieved a maximum speed of 23 kilometers per second. It was the fastest spacecraft ever launched from Earth, in fact. Mm. And it's still going. It's charging on past Pluto. It's past Pluto already, heading towards the depths of the what we call the Kuiper Belt. What would happen if, uh, instead of going that way, New Horizons had been targeted at Alpha Centauri? Well, it probably would have got there because um, these things actually uh, follow very predictable paths. The only snag is that it would have taken something like 60 to 70,000 years to get there. Give or take uh, a millennia. Give or take a millennium or but two. It's, those, those are just staggeringly outrageous numbers. I mean, you just wouldn't fathom... The, you, you wouldn't consider a mission with that kind of time scale because exactly. humanity um, might not exist by the time it, you got there. That, that's right. Um, all, all of the above are the, are the factors. And so um, this is, you know, in, in a sense, this represents the big problem, the big hurdle that we have in trying to, 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 to explore the stars. Exploring the solar system is something that's happening now. We're doing it very successfully with many chemically powered spacecraft. But if you're going to explore the stars, clearly you need some new technology. And I guess that's perhaps the most interesting part of this uh, idea that is being funded, yes, by a billionaire. His name is Yuri Milner, um, a, a basically a, 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 you know, a, an IT intra, um, entrepreneur. He um, has already bankrolled a project called Breakthrough Listen, which is actually like a super SETI, search, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, listening for signals uh, from uh, possible alien species using some of the world's biggest radio telescopes. That's already happening, and that's fantastic. Um, he teamed up uh, with, of course, that, um, you know, I, I'd, I hardly dare call him the grand old man of, of physics um, because he's only, I think, two years older than me, uh, <laughs> um, Stephen Hawking. Uh, Stephen Hawking and Yuri Milner teamed up with the Breakthrough Listen Project. They've also teamed up with this new project, uh, which is designed to send a spacecraft to Alpha Centauri on a timescale not of 60 or 70,000 years, but maybe 20 years. How do you do that? That's well, the question. I mean, how, yeah. do you, how do you take traditional rocket science and reduce the timescale from 60, 70,000 to 20, 25 years? Yeah, and the answer is you don't use traditional rocket science. So traditional rocket science mixes chemicals together and produces energy, uh, which we blast out the back end of it. It's very spectacular, terribly macho stuff. <laughs> uh, but um, the, the technique that would need to be used to get to Alpha Centauri would be uh, so different that it, it almost, uh, once again, defies belief. Um, there is a principle which has been tried and tested already in space, and that is to use what's called a solar sail. Uh, this is a, a, a basically a thin membrane, a very lightweight material, which is extended like a sail, and you use not the wind of, of subatomic particles from the sun, but the actual pressure of the radiation from the sun, which turns out to be more effective mm. in pushing along uh, a spacecraft. Uh, that has been tried and... Uh, 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 you know, there, there, are, there are experiments ongoing, actually, with, with that uh, process. But if you can do that, then you have a chance of bringing down this, uh, this length of time because what happens with a solar sail is you've basically got this, this pressure 
of, of light from the sun, uh, which doesn't just switch off when the chemicals run out. And that's the problem with chemical rockets. They only burn for a limited length of time. The solar sail, you can hoist it in space and it will just keep on gathering the light of the sun and being blown along. The problem arises, though, when you're looking at interstellar distances, because from, uh, you know, even halfway to Alpha Centauri, the sun is getting very dim yeah. and there's not that much radiation coming from it. So this is the other side of the technological breakthrough that will be needed for this uh, project to succeed. And that is uh, a laser, uh, an Earth, uh, pr probably a laser in Earth orbit, which can be directed at the solar sail and can use solar energy itself, probably using solar panels, but it's near enough to the sun that it will gather that. And you blast light out of the laser uh, to push the solar sail along. And the bottom line with all this is that with all this technological advance, uh, you hope to achieve a speed roughly a third or thereabouts, maybe a quarter to a third of the speed of light, which will allow you to do this trip in more like, as I said, more like 20 to 25 years than which the, the is tens of thousands. much more realistic in terms of you know, collecting data or at least uh, achieving an end. Exactly, that's right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's within most people's attention span uh, on this <laughs> yes. kind of thing. And, Whereas... and the other thing that's fascinating about this story is the spacecraft itself. Uh, they're looking at tiny little things that fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, that, that's right. So uh, the, the spacecraft itself is, is uh, a nano satellite, um, something whose mass is not measured in kilograms, but measured actually in grams, mm. uh, and also has this very large extendable membrane, a membrane that will uh, extend to, um, I think it's several tens of metres in size wow. uh, and weighs next to nothing. Uh, so that is also technology that has to be you know, that has to be demonstrated and proven. Uh, the, certainly the basics are all there. Uh, I think one of the most exciting aspects of this mission is, uh, I mean, the, clearly the idea of flying by the Alpha Centauri system and having a look to see what the planets look like using sensors to measure if there are any biomarkers in the atmospheres of these planets, things mm. that tells you that there is life there. That's, that's exciting, of course. But the, uh, the other thing, and perhaps the thing that is more likely to affect our everyday lives is the improvements in technology that will come from this yes. in terms of lightweight uh, nanomaterials, in terms of laser engineering that might eventually find its applications in all kinds of other areas of, uh, of technology and perhaps medicine uh, than, than we can foresee at the moment. So I think it's a great project. Certainly is, and uh, can't wait. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. And now we're going to turn our attention to something we spoke about uh, a week or two back, the Hitomi X-ray Observatory. This was a, 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 a mission, a very costly mission, uh, that was set up to uh, to look at uh, some pretty intriguing things about X-rays and black holes and the like. Fred will know more about it than I do, obviously. <laughs> but uh, it all went awry in in a big way, and the uh, um, the spacecraft basically destroyed itself. Uh, they've been looking at why, Fred. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, uh, as you said, um, a Japanese spacecraft, the Japanese space agency JAXA, launched this on the 17th of February this year. Uh, and it was, it, it, it was designed uh, with a lot of international collaboration to look at very high energy processes 
uh, going on deep in the universe. Things like the, uh, the accretion disks of black holes, possibly black hole mergers, the uh, outer envelopes of galaxies, all this uh, exciting stuff that we want to know about needs X-ray telescopes. And uh, X-ray telescopes have to be above the Earth's atmosphere because the, Earth swallow the Earth's atmosphere actually uh, doesn't allow X-rays to pass through, paradoxically. Mm. Um, so uh, it was launched and was going through its... Uh, uh, the, the sort of scientific verification process, everything seemed to be working normally. And then on the 26th of March, suddenly there were signals that said it, its orbit had changed uh, very, very suddenly, uh, and, and radar observations were showing not just one, but in fact, uh, originally it was thought to be five pieces where the, there'd only been one spacecraft before. Uh, we now think it, it's actually broken up into more than 11 pieces with, with more recent um, uh, measurements. So uh, a really heartbreaking thing for the scientists and engineers involved. Um, it looks as though uh, the spacecraft, as you said at the beginning, destroyed itself. And what's happening now is a kind of post-mortem. Uh, I have to say that they have not yet given up hope of recovering this spacecraft. But when you find out what happened to it, then you know that the chances are very slim indeed. Yeah. And it all seems to have boiled down to something wrong with its inertial reference unit. And this is just, uh, it's almost like the kind of thing that you have in your mobile phone, which tells you which way up it is. Mm. It's, a, it's a gravity sensor, basically. And uh, that clearly had a fault, because what it did was uh, told the main computer system that the spacecraft was actually turning, that it was rotating, actually at uh, about 22 degrees per hour, which is a relatively um, s slow rotation compared with, uh, you know, our movements here on Earth. Uh, you can turn a car at a lot faster than 21 de 22 degrees an hour. Yes. But for, for the spacecraft, it's quite a lot. So what it did was uh, kicked in... Uh, the mechanism that stops that rotation. And these are things called reaction wheels. They're wheels, uh, flywheels, that when you turn them, uh, the spacecraft tries to move in the opposite direction. Um, my uh, sources tell me that something similar happens when you swing a golf club. Oh, I can tell you, you with... You don't with, know anything about that. I can tell you with catastrophic experience that that's exactly <laughs> what happens when yeah. you swing a golf club. If you aim left, it'll go right. If you aim right, it'll go left. It's the same effect. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what, um, that, that's what, basically what, what happens with these reaction wheels. So the reaction wheels kicked in, but because they were responding to a false alarm uh, and the spacecraft actually wasn't rotating, what happens when you turn the reaction wheels on is, yes, it does actually start to rotate. Uh, so the rotation was getting, the rotation that these wheels were trying to stop was actually getting higher. Um, now, the sensors, the computer sensors uh, realized that um, uh, th it's getting higher and higher. They're, they're trying to correct uh, and putting more power into the reaction wheels. So the rotation is getting faster and faster. And in fact, they, they had to shut down the reaction wheels because they were right at their design limit of speed. Um, then what happened was that the computer system spat the dummy and put the whole... <laughs> Uh, put the whole spacecraft into a kind of emergency hold situation. Um, and what you do when that happens is uh, try and point the solar panels towards the sun, which means you've got to sense the direction of the sun, point the solar panels to it. But because by then it was rotating, um, you know, really, really very rapidly, mm. that process failed as well. Um, because when they 
fired the, uh, the, the what, what are called the thrusters, the uh, hydrazine thrusters. These are small rockets that actually uh, are used to, 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 to stabilize the spacecraft. When they fired those, uh, the, the, it just increased the rotation even more. Um, and at that stage, parts of the spacecraft started breaking off. And that is apparently where we are now with a spacecraft that's rotating at something like five, uh, once every five seconds. Uh, that's uh, very, very high in terms of uh, the rotation of a, a craft like this. Uh, in particular, uh, we don't even know whether the solar panels are still attached to it. Yeah. But if they are or if parts of them are, uh, it's not enough. It, it means that as these things pass the direction of the sun, uh, they, they're going too fast. They're not actually getting any power from the sun with that kind of rotation speed. How, however, Fred, the, the big catastrophe in all of this is that they now think that initial detection of rotation was wrong. Yes, that's right. That's exactly it right. Wasn't so actually, it wasn't actually spinning at all. It wasn't spinning at all. It just um, it, it, something went wrong. Uh, the computer, the inertial uh, reference system said, "Oh, you're spinning," uh, and from then onwards, it was doomed. Basically, so we can say essentially it was actually doing what it was supposed to do <laughs> on the first day, and then it tried to fix something that wasn't broken. Uh, that's right. Mm. It's a, you know, it really is heartbreaking for the scientists and engineers who've worked on this. I know. With space programs like this, often you, you've, you've got a, one project that you're working on for t 20 years or something oh. to get this thing going. It's like doing then, a podcast for 20 minutes and then finding you only recorded 10 seconds. Heaven forbid that that should ever happen. <laughs> yes, um, I wonder but, when that uh, happened recently. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, anyway, you know, I can uh, understand the, their frustration. It must be awful. They uh, the, these the thing is these podcasts don't cost 280 million dollars <laughs> no, each. Uh, if they did, you and I would be <laughs> probably better off than we are. Um, but yes, it's a very, very sad story. I, the, the, there are people who still hold out hopes that, that you know there might be a, a recoverable signal from the spacecraft, but it really looks um, it really looks like the end of the road. Okay. Well, we'll possibly hear more about that, but uh, at this stage, uh, let's hope they paid their insurance premiums. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go. Space Nuts. And now to uh, crowdfunding. This is where uh, people appeal to the public for dollars to do things fascinating, sometimes not so fascinating. But in this case, they're trying to find out more about the WOW signal. Now, this was a signal that was detected in 1977, and all these years later, we're still wondering what it might have been. Could it have been extraterrestrials or some other anomaly? We don't know, but they're certainly trying to find out, Fred. <laughs> Indeed. Actually, they've been trying to find out for nearly 40 years because um, this uh, signal that was received by a telescope with the fascinating name of the Big Ear Radio Observatory, uh, which is in the USA, uh, that, that uh, telescope was actually partaking in the SETI program, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I tend to forget he said he. Well, you need more spaghetti, uh, Andrew. <laughs> so so the, the, the SETI uh, program has never detected anything mm. except on the 15th of August, 1977, this, uh, this signal that was a very, very bright signal in terms of the radio brightness of the, of the source. And the, uh, the astronomer who was... 
uh, running the show at the time, Jerry Amon, he uh, wrote the word wow uh, next to it on the computer printout that he had. And that's why it is uh, always wow called the wow signal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow is actually a very appropriate word for it because it's so high. It's just far, far higher uh, than anything uh, that had been recorded, I think, by the, the, the telescope uh, before or since. So very much uh, a strong signal, no apparent um, you know, uh, problem with, um, uh, with, with any kind of technological uh, fault or anything like that. It seems to have been a, a real signal. And the clue in that comes from the fact that it uh, lasted for 72 seconds. Now, 72 seconds is, uh, you might think, well, that means that the signal flared up for 72 seconds and then died away. But that's not the case. It is only what the radio telescope saw that lasted for 72 seconds. Right. Because the telescope was pointing in a fixed direction, not a fixed direction in space, but a fixed direction relative to the Earth. And, of course, the Earth is turning. So um, as the Earth uh, turns, the direction of the telescope would scan through the sky. And uh, if you came across something very bright in the sky, then 72 seconds is how long it will be in the window that the telescope it's is like actually... sweeping seeing. the headlights when you turn a car in. It, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, but it's the other way around because you, you're seeing uh, radiation coming from, yep. from the sky. Yep. But while the signal is in the beam of the telescope... Uh, or while this source of radiation, uh, radio waves is in the beam of the telescope, then you'll get the signal. But as the beam swings away, the signal falls away. And 72 seconds is exactly what you would expect for a signal of constant intensity in the sky as the telescope sweeps across it. So essentially the signal could have been much longer uh, in duration and we, that, that's all we got of it because that's of the all rotation we got of, it, of the yes, Earth. Yes, just that, yeah. little, that little snippet. Um, now... Of course, the, what happens, uh, presumably this happened the next night, they looked for it again and has been looked for more than 50 times since then. Mm. But no signal from that direction in space has ever been seen. So it was very much a one-off, and that's why it's such a fascinating mystery. Um, lots of theories have been proposed about it, uh, the latest being one uh, from Professor Antonio Paris, or Paris, or Paris. I don't know how he pronounces his name. He's Paris. actually in America. It'd be Paris, mate. Paris. It probably is Paris, yeah, because he's in St. Petersburg College in the USA. <laughs> um, he has a theory which actually looks um, really rather interesting in terms of, uh, of its... Um, you know, of, of, of its scientific uh, uh, veracity. He knows that uh, there were comets in the area of the sky that the Big Ear was pointing at back in 1977. Now, comets are interesting objects because they, they, they're just basically, um, you know, flying icebergs of, of water ice and dust and other organic chemicals. But they often have an envelope of hydrogen, which actually comes from the, the water ice dissociating uh, from the, uh, you know, from the, um, the oxygen in, right. in water. Yep. And that hydrogen radiates at the same frequency as the big ear was tuned to when ah. it collected the wow signal. It's a very common signal. It's actually the most common radio signal in the universe. It comes from what we call neutral hydrogen. So that hydrogen uh, around the comet may have been what caused the signal because uh, actually two comets, not just one, were in the vicinity of the part of sky 
that the big ear was looking at in 1977. Switch to 2016, actually to 2017 and 2018, because these comets are going to be in the same part of the sky again uh, in, in 2017 and 2018. And what Professor Paris wants to do is build uh, actually a very modest radio telescope, but because things have moved on since 1977, uh, to look to see whether he gets the same signal when these comets are in the same part of the sky. Uh, the problem is, this is such speculative science that no funding agency is going to cough up the money in order to do that. And that is why he has turned to crowdfunding to try and source the $20,000 he needs uh, to build... Uh, and install this three-metre radio telescope to do the job. And the great... Uh, it's it's you know, not much, really, is it? I it, mean, it, to, to you and me, it's like, you know, a down payment on the Maserati. But for him, it's... <laughs> In it's, your dreams, Yeah, I reckon. Andrew. <laughs> it, it's, for an astronomical study, that's... that's it, it's a small nothing. amount, that's right. Um, and And maybe that's why he seems to have met with success. I think he's very close to... Uh, reaching the $20,000 purchase price. Uh, we perhaps should catch up on that to, to, to see whether he does sure. get the, the money. And uh, hopefully that will allow him to build this telescope. And, um, you know, it would, be, it would be in some ways disappointing to be able to say, yes, it was a signal from a comet, because we're all, you know, we'd all really like to, it to be uh, uh, ET beaming out signals to us um, and then forgetting about it and going away and not doing it again. But one way or the other, we, we may know uh, more about the wow signal once this uh, crowdfunding telescope has been built. He'll and get, he'll get the money faster if he pitches the ET angle. That's sure. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> uh, can we find ET or will it just be a comet? Well, mm. who knows? Oh, well, given that comets are the most common source of this signal, I think you'd be putting your money on that. You might be at the moment, but we will look forward to it. You never know. He, uh, he might find something that will make him say, wow. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right, Fred, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you too. And Stop we'll catch up time. with you next week. Yes, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, goodbye. Thanks for listening to Space Nuts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and keep the messages coming in. Uh, coming in. We do love to hear from you. See you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.